0: Thank you very much, Um, and I'm really happy to be here. I want
1: to say thank you to you, Dee Miles, um, and the organizers of the, as an organizer of the Marxist classes, for inviting me to give this presentation today. Um, I'm I'm excited to join this series today to talk about a book that's been republished. Um, It's about the All India Democratic Women's Association. Um, and I've left on this front screen of the PowerPoint my email, so if you want to get in touch with me after this talk, you can. Um, also, if you want a copy of the book, it's available at 1804books.com as a pre-order. It'll be coming in within a couple of weeks, um, and um, so you can get it there. It's published with Leftward Books in New Delhi, India, but they, they are sending a shipment now. So I thought what I'd do to start um, is is just give a short note on how I came to doing this work, how I came to write this book. So in 1991, I moved to India as a graduate student in the middle of my course of study. I first met AIDWA members, the All India Democratic Women's Association members, at a protest against the Gulf War, um, the Gulf War that was launched by the first Bush president, so way back in the early 90s. And this may sound obvious to the group that's gathered here, but this rally brought home to me the working class internationalism that's embedded in the demand for peace. So I thought I would feel estranged so far from home while my country was waging war in the Gulf. What I found was a community. Again, it sounds obvious. Um, The second realization at that rally, as I met these organizers um, from the All India Democratic Women's Association, was that the demand for peace is not just a demand for peace in this context. It's a demand for the end of imperialism. So, again, those might sound like obvious revelations, but to me, they were new in 1991. So from that moment forward, I began working with um, All India Democratic Women's Association members in New Delhi. I worked on their neighborhood campaigns against domestic violence, which were very different from the ways that we organize against domestic violence in this country. They were community wide. They involved unions. They involved um, other kinds of organizations alongside the women's organization to demand the end of violence within familial um, locations. I then returned to the United States a year later, determined to find our communist movement at Brown University, which is where I was getting my um, working on my Ph.D. I joined the Young Communist League. I learned um, from the Communist Party members in Rhode Island, such as Margaret Kahn. And I recently found an interview I did with her in 1993, who was born in Margaret Kahn, um, was born in 1904. Margaret joined the party, she told me, in the early 1920s, so just after it it formed in the United States. As soon, she said, as soon as she could find a party member. In the mid-1990s, I joined the Communist Party and I have never left it. Since that first meeting of AIDWA members, For the next 25 years, I returned to India to live at least once, if not twice every year for an extended period, either six weeks or three months, sometimes one year, as much as I could. In 1995, the year of the UN Conference on Women, which was held in Beijing, I began to work on this book through interviews, participant observation, and solidarity organizing. Before that, for those four years, I was coming to India and working alongside um, Um, the All India Democratic Women's Association. Um, I hadn't thought of writing a book. It wasn't what my PhD was on, and um, it was only in 1995 that I realized the lessons I was learning in India needed to be told. They're lessons that that are internationalist, that are anti-imperialist, that are deeply anti-patriarchal. So now in The book was first published in 2013, and I asked the question of how AIDWA built its membership during the onslaught of neoliberal economic and public policies. So 1991 really was the start of neoliberalism as we know it um, in India. And it continued until this day. Um, And my research was over 15 years. From 1991, basically at that first anti-Gulf War rally, um, until 2006. And the question I asked was, during this period, as resources got smaller and smaller, as jobs became fewer and fewer and more tenuous, more unavailable, um, as people became closer and closer to the edge of survival, what happened as well was the rise of anti um, oppressed caste violence, and anti-Muslim communal violence. So all of this was happening during these years. And my question was, why was this organization growing? Why was it moving from 1.2 million members in 1991 to 10 million members in 2006? What were they doing in the face of this incredible hardship? So now in 2021, these questions are just as pressing just as central to our internationalist, anti-imperialist, working-class women's movement. I want to thank, first, Sudanva Deshpande and Vijay Prashad at Leftward Books for republishing this book. Um, It's a book about the extraordinary work by ordinary women who give the All India Democratic Women's Association its centrality to imagining a world without violence, a world that values all people and centers the struggles and leadership by working class people, rural and urban, Dalit and lower caste women, Muslim, Christian, Sikh and Hindu women. As a mass-based political organization of women, it seeks to dismantle caste hierarchies, religious bigotry, patriarchal violence and class exploitation. And this book attempts to tell their story. And lastly, I want to thank uh, Leon Fulehan of 1804 Books for for going all out and making sure that there are copies
0: to be soon available. All right. You muted
2: yourself, Elizabeth. You muted yourself, so start. Thank you. You said after all right. Start from where you said all right. Okay.
1: Um. So. Uh. This book has a new forward. Um. And it's written by Brinda Karat. She was the general secretary of the organization of the All India Democratic Women's Association from 1993 to 2004. She's still a, a leading member of the Communist Party of India Marxist and organizer among. Um all people, but with a focus on rural um, people and uh, uh, un- um, oppressed caste people. So in her foreword, Brinda Karet reflects on the work of aidwa while she was general secretary, because much of this book was while she was general secretary. And she's asked questions for the moment that we're in now. And I wanted to share some of them from the book. Unfortunately, all of my panels are in front. Here we go. How do you mobilize women when the state itself transforms into a producer of hate and communal poison? And this term communal means religious bigotry, caste bigotry, um, hatred on the basis of majoritarian power. And another question she asks. When culture has been hijacked by the promotion of state-backed aggressive majoritarian religious identity, and here she's talking about that Hindutva government, central government, what are the strategies adopted to mobilize women for secular values, for values that hold the the value of everybody regardless of religion? And her last question that she asks in the foreword. Well, there are more, but these are the three I'm focusing on. How do women's movements integrate these issues in the struggle on livelihood issues against the all out offensive of pro-corporate neoliberal policies being pursued by the present central government? So when she talks about integrating all these issues, she's talking about the the kinds of daily violence of bigotry, of domestic violence, of anti-woman violence, of anti-Muslim violence. The, the ways that even in the inner relationship between people, those larger forces of corporate neoliberal policies, those larger forces of a state that is a producer of hate, how do we make sure we integrate everything into our women's movements? So the picture that I have below is from the past. As you can see, it's from 2004. And Brinda Karet is in the center. And I want you to remember um, the person to her right, uh, who is a beloved leader um, of the anti-colonial movement, but also um, in Eidwa, Malu Swarajwam. Sorry, now my speaking has gone down. Swarajwam, so let me go to the next. So to tell the story of Eidwa, there are many stories of origins. And one of the ways to tell a story like this one is to start through important leaders. So I'm going to, to, to tell many stories of origins for Aidwa today. Um, the first person that I have here is Renu Chakravarti. This is a photograph from the 1930s before she went to England. She too traveled abroad. She was part of um, uh, anti-colonial movements. But when she traveled to England, she started to meet communists. And she met people like R.P. Dutt, um, like organizers from local levels, as well as other students from around the world who were coming from colonial contexts, moved to London for their college education and became radicalized. And that moment in the late 1930s she returned right before the beginning of of world war ii returned back to india and began organizing immediately joined the communist party immediately and started one of the early uh, women's movement organizations radical working class women's organizations um, called the um, Mahela Atmarakshmi samathi So she was born between 1917 and 1994, also has written a fantastic history of communist women's movement in India. Another person, um, Kanak Mukherjee, we could talk about the origins of of this organization through her work. Kanak Mukherjee was the vice president for almost from the founding of 1981 till 1999, so almost two decades in Eidwa. She too started out in anti-colonial organizing, um, and tells the story of being 14 years old and passing notes and um, uh, information among the organ- communist organizers against British colonialism. And she said at the age of 14, she borrowed her cousin's book, The Communist Manifesto, and at night under her covers, um, would, with a, with a flashlight, would read The Communist Manifesto and by candlelight would discuss it with her brother and her cousins and other people who were in the movement. So here's another founder of the movement that we could go back through her life story, which was a rich and exciting one and dangerous and um, brave and courageous and long lasting. Um, The way that I started this book is I went I went through one of the founding members from the south. So both the previous people that I mentioned are from West Bengal. Um, Papa Umanath is from Tamil Nadu. And she was someone also who started very young. She was from a working class background, a working poor background. Her father died when she was very young. Her mother um, owned a mess in um, a very famous Golden Rock railway station in the south um, and sold food. Um, And one of the ways she um, uh, supplemented a very small income was by selling snacks, by selling idlis. So Papa Umanath, as a little five-year-old girl, started working. So she started work at five and she would carry these snacks among the railway workers and sell them. And the name Papa is not father, it means little girl. Um, And that nickname stuck with her. She ended up joining the Communist Party at the age of 14. Um, At the age of 12, she courted arrest um, um, with the colonial officials as part of the anti-colonial movement. Um, And she was so angry when they only arrested her mother and not her. And she fought with the magistrate that she, too, could go to jail, that she, too, was a revolutionary. So these are our ways into a movement like this one is to look at the leaders. Who's who's there? Who are they? What life histories do they come from? What did they do? There's another way into a movement like this one is to ask the question, what are the struggles that are that led up to this, that are part of this? So here's a photograph from from 1930, quite a ways back, right? And this is a moment when the move from anti-colonialism being largely men involved, although that's not true, like there were women involved in the movement, right? In the 19th century and onwards. Um, But this was a moment when publicly women were joining the anti-colonial movement. And this is the salt satyagraha where they said, look, you can't put, you can't tax salt. We can make our own salt. And the refusal to go along with the colonial sort of captive market imperialism that said, no, you must buy our salt with a tax, with a with a surcharge. So what these women are doing here, you can see the the containers they're carrying and they're filled with um, brine and they're putting them in a salt pan for them to um, evap the water to evaporate and the salt to remain. And this was illegal. So we could go back to movements like this one where women said we, too, are part of this movement. We, too, are anti-colonial organizers, and many of the early organizers came through this. This photograph is hard to see, it is the only one I know of, of a what Renu Chakravorty, remember the first photograph, Renu Chakravorty argues this was the first time they developed a mass protest of only working-class women, of only working-class, working-poor women. And what you can see here, if I can explain it to you, I know it, it's, it's it's not super clear, um, and it apparently was a photograph taken by Vidya Munchi, um, who later is known as, uh, sorry, Vidya Kanega, who's later known as Vidya Munchi. So it's, you can see the women sitting in the road, what's called a, a road rocko or a, a sort of a sit down strike. You can see around them are men in, um, in white kurtas, um, in white, the, the long shirt right in the back there. Um, But this protest in 1944 was an anti-colonial protest. It was also an anti-famine protest. It was also demand for the state to have basic food available during a famine, during the loss of crops of um, 1942 and 1943 into 1944. So this is... Uh, Not the clearest photograph, but this is a very, very important movement to building a working-class women's movement in India. The last photograph here, um, this is why I asked you to look for Maluswarajam in the last, uh, from the previous photograph. Um, You can see the woman closest to us in the photograph, the woman holding the rifle on the left of this photograph. This is her in the period of the Telangana people's struggle from 1946 to 1951. So what you can see in these dates here is that Indian independence did not stop the anti-imperialist movement. So gaining independence in 1947, so you had 1946 and 1947, Indian independence came. This struggle continued. It was a struggle against um, the feudal... Uh, princely state of the Nizam of Hyderabad in Pelangana, uh, and the the struggle was an armed struggle, and it included um, rural, um, agricultural, peasant uh, women and men. So we could understand the All India Democratic Women's Association of today through these historical roots, whether it's through the women, through the struggles they were part of, through the people that they organized, through the kinds of issues that they took up, how they developed their struggles, the ways that they pushed leadership, not simply on the people who went to London to get the education and got radicalized there, but leadership from the very people on the heel of injustice, on the heel of class exploitation to take leadership from 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 exactly the people most exploited most oppressed so there's another origin and that's the origin of the communist party and partly in the the title of this talk of strategies of organizing i think it's important to recognize and i think in the scholarship in in the world that i live in most of the time this is the piece we hide we hide The relationship to the communist movement, the international communist movement, but also national communist movements. We forget even mass organizations where you don't have to be a communist to join the All India Democratic Women's Association. Most of the members are not communists. They are women who seek justice. They are women who seek equality. But the movement has its role within this larger communist socialist organizing realm. And the origins of the All India Democratic Women's Association, this is one of the origins, the support for a mass women's organization as part of the larger left formations fighting for a more just world, fighting for the overturning of class exploitation, of communal bigotry, right, of religious hatred, um, and caste violence. And patriarchal violence. So, as we tell these stories, as we think about an organization like this one, as we think about not just the organization within India, but also as an international force, as a force that has an international horizon, this is another story of origins. And one of the questions within this part of origins is how do you build movements? Oh, sorry, one more photograph. Um, Here's a more recent one. This is probably, you are following this story. It is a powerful, um, disturbing, enraging story, um, and yet also very heartening. Um, The farmer solidarity protest, there are three bills in particular that are seeking to further disenfranchise farmers around the country. And as probably you know, or I'll say it anyway, Many, if not most of um, the farmers in India are women who are doing the work, they're women. So when we talk about farmers, um, you know, and that kind of hackneyed vision of the straw hat um, or corn cob pipe, um, what we're talking about in India is a, a largely female workforce. Of course it is, you know, also men, but, but many women are, Um, uh, deeply invested and deeply part of this movement. So to go back to this question of origins, why that's important, what it means to have a movement like the All India Democratic Women's Association to be within this larger constellation of, uh, they say in India, um, Kisan Sabha movements or peasant movements, um, the student movements, um, as well as the women's movement and the Democratic Youth Federation. So. So why that's important. Um, And some of the questions that go into how do you do this work? How do you organize women? How do you organize women so that you build a stronger working class movement? So that it isn't a way to divide working class struggles. It's a way to sharpen, to strengthen, to make more powerful that vision, that larger vision for a more just world. So, how do we build the strongest working class and peasant movement attentive to patriarchal relations of oppression? How do we do this so that everybody's involved? This isn't a women's issue. This is the the issue of struggle. How do we build the largest possible working class and peasant movement that involves working class and middle class women? So to call it a working class movement doesn't mean to say there is only one class background, right? Because remember Renu Cepovertti who went to London, Um, It's not, the same is not true of Kanak Mukherjee, but she also got college education. She went to college in Kolkata. And the case of um, Papa Umna, another core leader who went to very little school. There was very few years of school. She started working at the age of five, right? So how do we produce that strength? And then the question that is absolutely pivotal to the story that I'm trying to tell in this book is what are the central issues for working class and pe- peasant women? How do, we, how do we develop that knowledge? How do we develop that organizing? Okay. So this is the photograph I've shown in another talk that I've given for this lecture series. I like a little repeat. So this is the repeat. This is a picture of Esther Cooper, who later became known as Esther Cooper Jackson, and Vidya Kanuga, as I said, who later became known as Vidya Munchie. Both of these organizers. Now, Esther Cooper was coming in 1945 to London. Vidya Kanuga was there as a student already, again radicalized, joined the Communist Party, part of the youth movement. They're there in London in November of 1945 for the World Youth Conference. And you can tell there's a there's a recognition in this photograph that internationalism, that sharing of stories, that knowledge, that anti-imperialism. Yes, it has it form its forms through the the fight that Esther Cooper was deeply part of against Jim Crow racism, against racism that was systemically part of U.S. history and the present. Um, she was a, um, a delegate from the Southern Negro Youth Congress at this time. By 1949, that organization based in um, Montgomery um, was shut down by the anti-communist movement in the United States. Vidya Kanuga was coming from as a representative of the SFI, of the Students', um, uh, the Students Federation. The two of them, I am quite certain in this photograph, were both sharing the differences of their struggles, but also the commonalities of their struggles, the internationalism, internationalism of their struggles, the centrality of anti-racism to anti-imperialism. This is just a guess, um, but uh, since I can't know what happened in this, this conversation, but that's, that's my guess. So it's also a time in the United States where they're asking this question, the question of how do you build a stronger movement that still attends to the differences between and among people. And in the United States, the Women's Commission was revitalized under the leadership of William Z. Foster. So in 1945, Claudia Jones became the head of the Women's Commission in the CPUSA. And women like Esther Cooper in the photograph, um, later known as, as I said, Esther Cooper Jackson, um, were central to radical women's movements in the US. So communists supported mass women's organizations, so you did not have to be a communist or a socialist to join, um, like the Congress of American Women, began in 1946, so a year after that photograph. When it was shut down by anti-communism, women like Esther Cooper immediately founded American Women for Peace. And alongside this racially mixed women's organization, Esther Cooper was also one of the founders of a black women's organization called the Sojourners for Peace and Justice. So women like Esther Cooper and Claudia Jones had leadership roles in both groups. Vidya Kanuga joined communist, movements, joined communist movements as a student and she never left. So the question asked of how to address the differences among women and by women, um, one of the texts that we're coming back to quite carefully now in our movements, as, and not just in scholarship, although I've quoted from Mary Helen Washington in a pretty early essay that returns to this um, essay, this um, uh, pamphlet, um, what later became a pamphlet by Claudia Jones. And here there's an analysis in Jones's piece that there are questions. So she's making an argument here in the context of a working class organization the question of racism is prior to and not equal to the question of sexism or the woman's question. She doesn't, and this is Mary Helen Washington making this argument, she doesn't subordinate women. She insists that the black working class woman must be at the center of left theorizing because she embodies the three most important elements of the left, the woman, the Negro, and the worker. So these kinds of answers they are emerging in the 1940s. And these kinds of relationships that are internationalist and anti-imperialist are part of the context, both of the questions we ask and the ways that we answer them. In the case of the All India Democratic Women's Association, its earliest national organization, there were many regional organizations, But the earliest national one was the National Federation for Indian Women, which was started in 1954, again at the instigation of a internationalist um, gathering run by the Women's International Democratic Federation. So they started after the Copenhagen Conference of 1953 that pulled anti-imperialist, internationalist, pro-socialist women from around the world. After that conference, the National Federation of Indian Women started And due to um, uh, conflict within the Communist Party movement, um, the the Communist Party, there were two parties after 1967, um, and for a long time within the National Federation of Indian Women, regardless of whether or not someone was a member of CPI or CPIM, so Communist Party of India or Communist Party of India Marxist, they organized together in the NFIW. Um, that started to change in the 1970s b- around the time of emergency, which was the suppression of civil, civil liberties by Indira Gandhi's government. Um, and out of that difference of, that kind of difference of analysis during the emergency period, the All India Democratic Women's Association emerged in 1981. Now what I want to show you in this photograph, you'll notice in the upper left hand corner is NFIW, so you can hear those older roots. Um, in the front of this photograph are um, uh, members of AIWDa. So that coalition still—it it never, it never died. It, it was never lost. Um, and consistently, when the fight comes to on um, any of the key issues, these two organizations work hand in hand together. Um, so these are protests around the Nirvaya rape case, which some of you may have heard of in 2013, 12 and 13, um, when pe- people across the country um, took to the streets. I was here during this period, um, or right after, maybe a week after um, the case uh, and but the organizing continued. So the mass women's organization, the All India Democratic Women's Association, It's also asked the question of differences within its movement over the years. And as I mentioned before, it began in 1981 with 590,000 members across India. In 2006, it grew to 10 million members. So how did they address the complexity of the Indian polity? How do you address the complexity of, of people's struggles? I'm going to look at two methods briefly, pretty briefly. One is the activist research methods for organizing a mass based working class women's movement. So they use activist research methods as a way to develop um, in the US often it's called clubs, but in this case it's it's um, uh, called no, I've suddenly forgotten one. we'll call them clubs um, to develop clubs around the country. Um, and they'll start in in an area and just knock on doors and use activist research as a way to find out what are the issues of working class rural and urban and and small town women and the second um, is a it's both theoretical and an organizing method to build um a mass-based women's movement with transformative ends and that uh that term intersectoral i'll explain a little bit Um, so, first, to understand intersectoral, um, it's worth knowing what sectoral analysis of organizing is. So, the, the, the All India Democratic Women's Association develops an analysis of working class women's lives by sectors, by those, those um, the most um, acutely um, disenfranchised sectors. So, first is religion. Um, and the issue of religious bigotry, of communalism against Muslim women, against Christian women, against Sikh women, and women from other minority religions. To give it the time to say, to ask within this sector, what is going on for working class women? In caste, with a focus on Dalit or oppressed caste, as well as lower caste women, and also indigenous women, what are called Adivasi women. So, these questions of caste and indigeneity are central to the sectors of organizing, of asking what's happening around this question of discrimination. The third sector that ADWA organizes through is rural women and asking the question of what are rural women's lives? Why has, and embedded in here is that rise of communalism, why are rural women, rural Hindu women, taking on an oppressive relationship to muslim women and so they ask this question through asking what are their lives what's happening in their lives and the last sector is the question of informal or casual economy and how are women surviving given that formal sector of economy is such a small sliver of the working people of the country and it's an even smaller sliver of working women So these four sectors, they, the um, AIDWA has developed an analysis through activist research to ask specific questions are, what are, rather than assuming they know what the issues are, finding out through activist research, what are those issues? So I'll take a small piece from the book, um, which was, um, around uh, the organizing in the southern state of Tamil Nadu, and they organized against caste violence in part because of these upsurges of spectacle violence, of of horrific violence, of burning whole Dalit communities down and and murdering everyone in the town. These, These intensification, which came with alongside, it had a longer history into the 50s and 60s, but intensified in the 80s and 90s. And rather than saying they knew the answer, they did the research. And what they found out as they were addressing this issue for Dalit women is that there were specific, uh, what they call untouchability practices that still existed, that people sort of told themselves, oh, we don't do that anymore. That That kind of violence doesn't happen. Discrimination doesn't happen anymore. So what they discovered and what they wrote to the Women's Commission in 2003, that there was still a ban on cycling, not permitting Dalits to stand in the queue, in the the line, with others in ration shops or in the tea stalls, the usage of two glasses system in tea shops, which is one glass for Dalits and one glass for upper castes, not allowing Dalits to draw water from the common pond, a ban on Dalits wearing chapels, wearing shoes, a refusal to, pro- to provide chairs to Dalit panchayat presidents. So the panchayat is like the um, uh, town council, They're refusing to allow Dalits to sit in a chair. 2003, because they'd done the activist research, because they'd gone door to door and talked to hundreds if not thousands of people, because they've done that work, they could go to the Women's Commission and say, these are still the issues that are affecting Dalit women's lives. These are still our issues. Because you're upper caste, because you're living in the cities, because these aren't your friends, you may sit in your Women's Commission and think we're all done with that now. But we can tell you because of our research that we're not. So this is an example of sectoral analysis for their organizing. So what did it mean to say intersectoral organizing? And here's where Karat ha- was really helpful to me, because I was watching this happen as I was spending time in India, and, I, and I, couldn't, I couldn't put my finger on it. So in an interview in 2004, I kept pressing and pressing on things I was seeing, and she articulated it for me like this. She said, so, could you organize women who would normally not be eating in a Muslim household to come out in support of Muslim women, to defend Muslim women against the state, not their own fundamentalists, Muslim fundamentalists, but against the oppression of the state? Are you prepared to go to Hindu localities and tell hindu women that they are utterly wrong and that is what women's unity is and must be so here what she was articulating for the first time for me i heard it out loud because i i couldn't i couldn't i couldn't put it into words what she was articulating here is the way that To take up communalism, again, it may sound obvious, but to take up communalism, it is not just to organize Muslim women against anti-Muslim violence. It is to organize an entire organization so it is their their organizing. And rather than tell Hindu women, go oppose Muslim fundamentalists, Hindu women have to organize in Hindu localities and organize Hindu women in support of of secularism of muslim women's rights so this method this notion of unity that rather than papering over differences or finding common issues let's say a rise in the cost of food or um uh a a demand against um domestic violence we could call these common women's issues what brinda Karat was organizing against was this uh, rise of communalism, rise of anti dalit violence, and saying that actually we had to, that the movement had to take it into account, had to make it part of their organizing, um, and part of what it meant to be part of Edwa. Um, okay. So I have a short story. this is from um, an organizer from. Um, South India. Her name is uh, Yu Vasuki, and she is an incredible organizer. I was felt so lucky to get to spend um, almost a year with her. And one of the ways that I, I raised this question, it was a little bit later, I raised this question with her, I guess it was 2005 or 6 with um, Vasuki. And I said, you know, this is what karat has been saying about your organizing. I'm seeing it here in Tamil Nadu as well. And she said, absolutely. She said, it, it's become a question of who is the we? She said, I fought over the last 10 years. There were, you know, various other techniques she was using to dismantle um, the kind of prejudice within the organization. But she said around Dalit women's issues, our own Qatar, our own members of we were using the term they. Well, Dalit women, they need to gain justice against anti-Dalit violence, let's say. And what she said again and again is no, the question is we. It is our problem. What we need is the end to anti Dalit violence as our problem. We share this problem. It is not somebody else's problem. And that was another way I heard um, an organizer articulate this intersectoral organizing so that we look, the, the organization looked at the ways that movements cross and how to build a unity that doesn't erase difference, but puts it at its very center. So this is a photograph of, um, again, much more recent, because I, I wanted to, since the book's recoming out, although I have been not there and I have been here, um, there's a lot of organizing that's happening right now where women are right at the, at the forefront. One of them is the farmer's protest site, and this is a memorial in um, Shah Jahanpur in Rajasthan. Um, that was made with all of these containers, um, these clay containers, which can be used for carrying water, for storing rice, um, for, for holding things safely, um, keeping it dry. And this container is a memorial of, um, from, of all the people who, are, um, who lost their lives in the movement. So I'm gonna come back one more time to intersectoral organizing. Um, again, it's a little text heavy, um, but another facet of this, I think you'll hear an echo um, of Claudia Jones's work who talked about triple oppression, right? Um, so here is again, Brinda Karat talking about um, organizing among Dalits on the left. The slogan of class unity will have more meaning for a Dalit worker if working class and agrarian class organizations and movements mobilize all workers against a specific oppression and exploitation that a worker faces as a Dalit. So you can hear that we in there. It is often taken mechanically that the common bonds of class exploitation will lead automatically to the unity of all the workers without necessarily addressing the specific issues of Dalit workers, and the poor as Dalit members of the working class. There is a social differentiation among workers created by the caste system. The double burden that Dalit workers face, and in the case of the women Dalit workers, the triple burden as a result of caste and gender discriminations and class exploitation has to be recognized and addressed. And what you can hear in 2016, so um, Brinda Karad was doing much more organizing within the Communist Party at this time, um, had moved out of that general secretary position, still linked to EDWA, but, but but organizing in different in different areas, um, brought the lesson from Edoa into the larger Marxist movement, communist movement. So here is another struggle, which you probably have heard of. It's another one that came out um, right before the pandemic um, hit, um, which is another struggle itself right now, given uh, how devastating the the pandemic is right now in India. Um, In 2019, the Citizenship Amendment Act gave, um, this was passed, uh, I think it was December 12th of 2019, gave um, citizenship to persecuted minorities from neighboring countries, excluding Muslims. Additionally, it announced the implementation of the National Register of Citizens, which demands documents of ancestry for future citizenship. So documents by residents of India now for a citizenship that will be reasserted. So that kind of state-based violence, that anti-Muslim violence, you can hear immediately. The bill was passed and women hit the streets Um, and I've given this a hot link. So if you want to go to the PowerPoint later, you can go to this um, beautiful set of maps um, of the protests led by women um, across the country. And these are multi-day sit-ins. Um, There's one sit in that lasted from December 12th until March 25th. So over three months with the support of the people. It was sort of caged in by the police. And yet people got food across those borders um, and they held that sit in. Here's the um, Shaheen Bagh protest uh, on the Constitution Day, on National Constitution Day of January 26th of 2020. And you can see the numbers. every day for three months there were numbers as high as 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 this and that question of who is the we and how do we fight so to go back to um, brinda karet's questions how do you mobilize women when the state itself transforms into a producer of hate and communal poison and if we ask this question through this notion of we through this intersectoral organizer, organizing, what does it mean to create the strength of a movement that can refuse the hate produced by the central government? When culture has been hijacked by the promotion of state-backed, aggressive, majoritarian religious identity, what are the strategies adopted to mobilize women for secular values? So this question of mobilizing women, how do we bring women to the streets? And there are ways that these questions, you can hear the seeds of answers even in the way she asked these questions. The only way can't be horrific laws being passed by the state. And one of the things that, that is meant, is mentioned, is talked about, it's true. All of those protests were organized by women from December to March, before March 2020, before the, the, the pandemic sort of shut everything down. All of those protests weren't able to overturn that bill. The protests that are ongoing now with the farmers' struggles, Those are still happening. And yet the current wave of COVID, um, it's hard to say if they'll be able to maintain those sit-ins, maintain those struggles. But the question of what the strategies are to mobilize women for secular values is a deep one, um, is is a vital one. And her last question, how do women's movements integrate these issues in the struggle on livelihood issues against the all-out offensive of pro-corporate neoliberal policies being pursued by the present central government. So that question of integration um, is one that I wanted to come back to. And I'm gonna, this is my last slide and I'm hoping we have time for a conversation, a little conversation, hopefully. This is a mural um, at the Jamia Millia Islamia University in New Delhi, um, honoring the importance, the centrality of women to these struggles, to Shaheen's grandmothers. Um, And you can see the names of protesters that were killed in the protests against the Citizenship Amendment Act. Um, And you can also see at the top, we, the people of India, having having solemnly resolved to to constitute India. Um, as sovereign, socialist, secular, and democratic republic, and that image, this this memorial, um, is one that I that I wanted to end the talk with today. And I hope um, I I'm happy to take questions um, or listen to comments. And as I said, my um, email is at the front of this talk. So thank you very much.
2: Thank you, Elizabeth. The floor is now open for questions and comments. We'll take several questions and comments, and then we'll turn the floor uh, back over to uh, Elizabeth. If you would like to introduce a question, please uh, uh, click your raised hand icon, click the picture of the hand, and I'll be able to open your mic. Musheen, your mic is open. Please open your mic on your end.
3: Thank you. Thank you, Professor Armstrong. Um, I want to ask a couple of questions. After, but first I want to describe two events that I watched during this Sabha uh, uh, march on, 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 on New Delhi. One was based in, in from New West Bengal. What I see in the video is that a group of peasant women are marching with the red flag in their hand. And the police try to block them and take their flags away. And the women get really angry and they surround the police and bring Sticks and stuff, and demanded that the flag be returned. And the police finally gave it, gave it, gave it back to the Number one. Second video I saw, of the peasants who are marching towards New Delhi had these big signs on front of them which said that we are the producers of food, your food. Remember, the number two. And, and also, as you probably heard, that number a of, lot of women also came in the march, and they were some some talk about that these women should go back to go, go their home. They vehemently opposed that. This, this means that they are going to stay the, stay in the, the mud. What I'm asking you is a question. I see a, a general rise in the consciousness of the working class in India today, and I, I think that, would you would you agree to, agree to that? And, then, and finally, my question is that: Is there an opportunity for women in in India who are engaged in struggles with, to 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 meet and uh, and exchange ideas with women who are fighting in this country, for example? I think we need to increase the international cooperation in in these ideas, somehow we need to find a way to do that. Thank you.
2: Okay, let's see. Um, Click your raised hand, click the picture of the hand to let... Okay, Laura, your mic is open. Hi, thank you. This is an excellent presentation and um as a member of a women's peace group, I just found this notion of you know, instead of looking for unity among all these different groups, uh looking at what particular groups like you mentioned the Dalits, what their very topmost concerns were and that's really interesting to me. I'm curious What was the, how effective was that method in terms of how well did it reach Hindu, say for example, Hindu women, to empathize with the Dalits, to empathize with the Muslims, you know, with their particular problems? And also, while they're doing that research, where you said they're knocking on doors, at the same time, were they also recruiting into the organization? Thank you, Laura. Looking for more raised hands. Irving, your mic is open. Open your mic on your end by clicking it with your mouse cursor. Open your mic on Irving Jones. Your hand is raised, your mic is open. You have to open your mic on your end. Click the picture of the mic with your mouse cursor, with your mouse clicker. All right, we have to move on. Looking for raised hands. We will not be able to read questions. So please, if you have a question, please click the picture of the hand so that we can um, open your mic. So Elizabeth, do you wanna... Okay, here's another. Larry, your mic is open.
0: Is
1: there
2: any relationship to women in neighboring Pakistan or other countries? Okay, thank you. So Elizabeth, you want to um, begin to answer? Elizabeth, can you hear me?
1: I can answer these two questions um, if you want. I could get started.
2: Yes. Yeah. Elizabeth, your mic is muted. Okay. It's open now. are you waiting for more questions or what what okay here's another um just hold on okay you're muted elizabeth i don't know what's happening you're you're muted we can't hear you okay
1: it's very poor in women's movements in
2: Okay, you're, you're,
1: oh, um, I have very bad Wi-Fi, so I'm I'm oh. I think something's happened to my Wi-Fi. Can you hear me now?
2: Yes, yes. Okay. okay this
1: so I think Larry asked if there's a relationship between AIDWA and.
2: Okay, your Hello? sound is going in and out. So what will help is if you kind of uh, hold yourself. Uh, don't move a lot. Because as you move, it
1: uh, goes. Okay. Okay. And I can turn off my screen, too. Okay. So I think what Larry asked is, is there a relationship between the All India Democratic Women's Association and Pakistani women's movements? Is that true?
2: I think that's what he asked, yeah.
1: Okay. So why don't I take these three and I'll start... From the top, um, I love those stories um, about the Kisan Sabha, of the peasant woman with the red flags and demanding those flags to be returned from the, the policemen. Uh, that kind of militance is something that I had the pleasure of witnessing again and again and again, the refusal to back down. The first time I was in Tamil Nadu, there was um, There had just been the massive tsunami which had completely devastated the fishing people's um living quarters, and the way that the international community was giving aid is they were giving money, and the money was being spent mostly on alcohol, so all around were men who who were very drunk um, The organizers in this neighborhood were utterly militant. And what they wanted from the distributors of aid were things in kind, things that had been lost in the tsunami. Um, And they lay in the road with trucks gunning their engines. And I lay there with them on the road with trucks gunning their engines, with the police station right in front of us, with the local commissioner nearby. And they refused to get up. There was nothing that was going to get them up. And I could see in the eyes of these um police officers and of the district commissioner who ultimately did come out of his office, that they were scared. They were going to have to back down in the face of this level of of determination, of courage, and of militance. And it sounds to me like the stories that you're telling me um, that you that you saw um are exactly in this context um, that refusal to back down um, and that knowledge that the work that 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 they're doing was right was correct this was a fight worth winning um, i think your your idea of of bringing women together to talk about ideas like that one photograph that i showed from 1945 i think it's utterly essential i think the assault is worldwide i think the rise of violence on the basis of white supremacy, of caste violence, of religious bigotry, I think it's going through the roof. It's one of the weapons, it's one of the tools. And if we can share our techniques, if we can stay in solidarity, both where we are locally, where we are nationally and how we are internationally, it's utterly critical, it's absolutely important. Um, In the second question, um, Laura, you asked about um, the women, you're part of a women's peace group. um, And you were asking about how this attempt to build a kind of we, rather than uh, Dalit women's issues, Muslim women's issues, right, Um, rural women's issues, a kind of these are all our issues, um, I think because that's been put to the center of the organizing, it happens, yes, it happens at the level of research and finding out what the issues are, but it also happens at the level of education, and I didn't get a chance to talk about that, but Aidwa has this incredible educational model that develops the ethics, develops the, the modes of organizing but, and the methods of organizing, but also the the cultures of organizing. Like to produce that we, to produce that are goes beyond empathy. It says, that issue is my issue. That community is my community. And that is not a simplistic thing. That is not a simple sort of um, appropriation of somebody else's life. It is to say, where is the cutting edge of this fight for me? Uh, In the case of a Hindu woman. Well, the cutting edge of the fight for a Hindu woman is within her own. Hindu-based community. And that's a difficult fight to have. That's a difficult struggle to be part of. And I met a lot of these women, um, particularly when I was in Haryana in the rural area where the farmer's movement is fierce right now. And I think of them as I read about the struggles and watch the videos of the struggles, because many of them were middle-class women. Some of them were quite enfranchised because of their willingness to take on their own communities that were upper caste or take on their own communities because they were Hindu and and sort of uh, reproducing this kind of violence, they had in some ways severed or uh, maybe cracked their relationships with their own communities, but not always. Like some of them were able to bring people with them from their own communities, from their own families and build the movement from within. And I think the other question, yes, with research, it did become recruiting. It didn't start as recruiting. So yes, you knock on doors as long as you come back. I mean, I think of Margaret Kahn with her newspaper. She had a newspaper route in Providence, and she would go every week. And the weeks that she wasn't feeling well, I think she was 89 in 1993, the week she wasn't feeling well, she'd make sure to call up one of us YCLers. So we went to her paper routes. She made sure every week, The PWW got to the people and she used the paper route in a way that I saw activist research developing so that you start meeting people, you start having a conversation, you start listening. And out of that relationship of listening, you develop campaigns, you develop, um, uh, units and you develop membership. So, and Larry, your question of relationship between India and Pakistan. Yes. All India Democratic Women's Association, their relationship to the left Pakistani women's movement is really quite exceptional. And the place where they found the most traction and the most connection, yes, some of the seeking to gain peace in the region. But the other part was around um, women's rights bills. And they have been sharing Kirti Singh, who has written many of the bills that are the, the shining lights, the sort of the winds of the movement who's part of Kirti Singh is part of Eidwa, she's worked with those legal organizations in Pakistan to make sure that the bills are, that they're they're sharing their techniques um, with each other as they're seeking to pass these bills that give women um, uh, stronger rights in the law.
2: Elizabeth, do you wanna take a couple more questions or?
1: Um, or uh, Let's see where we, I could take, two more, and then we could call it a night, because I know it's getting late for people.
2: Okay. Vivian, opening your mic. Your mic is open,
4: Vivian. Hi. Uh, you, you can hear me? Yes. yes. Okay. The van, um, I'm sorry, the van. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I'm, I was very impressed with um, the kind of just sort of radical survival um, of these resistance movements. I had a kind of question in terms of how we draw lessons is or uh how we kind of reckon with the failure of sectoralism in the u.s youth movement particularly the militant movement um and how uh, sort of revolution is pitted against resistance um, especially in the wake of these questions um it's so strongly linked with um uh, like the rural india's movement where do we draw our lessons is it like in the adivasi movement of this you know very staunch radical survival which uh which pairs itself with these i don't want to say broad-based alliances but you know very firmly as a center in, in in india's struggle movement but how do we get away from our sort of failures of intersectoralism how do we build that intersectoralism that has been so successful with you
1: thank you
2: okay okay one more question Cindy, did you have a question? I saw your hand was up. If you have a question, put your hand back up, Cindy. All right. Your mic is open.
0: Hi, hi. thank you. Um, Elizabeth, I mainly wanna say thank you for the incredible focus of your talk. and obviously my question is about applying the strategies also, although I certainly think that the struggles of the farmers these days, the the small hectare farmers is leading all of us forward and we need to keep on knowing as much as we can about it. But um, in terms of applying lessons, I'm thinking about Uh, In these days, Surge, which is showing up for racial justice, and is that the kind of thing that you talk about where Surge's mission is to talk white people, to talk to white people about making racism a central cause for their lives? I mean, does that seem like what you're talking about with Eidwa and the Hindu and Muslim women? Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Okay. Thank you, okay. Uh, Vivonne and
1: Elizabeth. Is your name Elizabeth? Sorry, I, I may have gotten the wrong her
2: name. name. Was, her name was Cindy.
1: Cindy, sorry about that. Um, yeah, these are both good questions. Um, so, Vivonne, your question is um, about, about the location in the U.S. and the failure of secularism in the U.S., so the rise also in the U.S. of a Christian uh, majoritarian fundamentalism, um, and I—I I, it is what I'm thinking about. It is what I'm thinking about as I as I was doing the work for this book, as I think about the moment we're in in the United States right now. Um, absolutely. So, what do we do? How do we organize? Who do we go to? Um, I think there are absolutely differences. You're asking the question of adivasi radical survival. So the way of producing almost autonomous zones or means of survival um, where one is. Um, I I think that's something we're, in a different way, we're seeing to a certain degree. Um, But where our failure is might be connected to Cindy's question. I think the larger question of Aidwa, and that the reason why I ended with that last part of of Origins is that what is the larger movement? Let's say an organization that Surge is part of. Is Surge the only thing that they're doing? Or is it part of a larger movement with with this deeper vision for a world that we want to see? Is it to talk to white people, to dismantle racism? Towards what? Um, in the context of a larger working class movement, that question is easier to answer. And I think in relation to both of your questions, Vivan and Cindy, is that question of what is the larger movement that we're building here? What is that larger constellation so that we can be doing, maybe it's we can't do everything, right? Maybe it's maybe it's in specific movements, but it's part of this larger whole, part of this larger left and vision for, a different world. So that, I could answer your questions for a lot longer, but I know people probably have a lot to do. Um, I am happy to get emails. Um, I may be a little bit slow to respond, but I wanted to make sure to keep that there. And I wanna thank um, Dee again for organizing this talk. I really appreciate it.
2: Well, we thank you, Elizabeth, and we thank everyone for participating tonight. Uh, uh, Those who registered, will receive a copy of the recording uh, tomorrow uh, sent through the system. That's why we encourage everyone to register uh, so that you can receive the the recording. Uh, So thank you everyone for attending tonight. Thank you, Elizabeth. And we hope to see everyone uh, at our next activity and you're encouraged to invite a friend. Thank you for participating again and good night. Good night, Elizabeth. Thank you. Good
1: night. Bye. Bye.